This morning I would have you turn to the 27th Psalm. Psalm 27. I'm going to read the entire Psalm, but we're going to give our attention to the last two verses. This is what my Bible calls an exuberant declaration of faith. I realize your Bible may place a different title over the psalm if it gives it one at all. Not a part of the inspired portion of this psalm. But we are told that it is a psalm of David. And these last two verses of the psalm are two of my favorites in the psalm, of my many, many favorites. Very often, I will use these as a response to someone texting me or calling me, wanting to pray with them regarding a certain matter, if they're having problems or difficulties or a certain trial in their life. These are two verses that you can hold on to. They're easy to hide in your heart. Lord, help us to hide them in our heart so when trouble befalls us, we can quote to ourselves from these verses. And that's really the, the, the goal of hiding Scripture in your heart, memorizing the Scripture. Immediately, some will throw up a, ha- a roadblock and say, I just can't do that. The Spirit of God will help you. And I can say that because we're instructed in the Scriptures to do it. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's exampled for us by David. The word of God is hidden in our heart toward the end of being readily available, immediately available. When we come to a situation or a circumstance that would overwhelm us if we didn't have something there to steady us and to help us. So, if your response is as mine from time to time, I just can't do that. I've got so much other going on in my mind and my heart. Or perhaps we might just say, I'm just too old to do that. Well, no, you're not. The Spirit of God indwells you. He is in all things your helper. And anything that we put our hand to, our our heart, our mind to, uh, the Lord will help us. That's not to say it will come easily. It may be more difficult for me or for you than someone else. One of the, the things that I'm, I'm amazed at my children when they're young uh, can recite enormous portions of Scripture. Now that's taking advantage of a young mind, I understand, and we should encourage that. But none of us are off the hook, so to speak, of memorizing the Scriptures. We looked at this entire psalm back in January of this year. Beginning in verse 1, we worked our way all the way down through the 14th verse. And I want to remind you of the three sections of the psalm before I read it. The first section is verses 1 through 3, where David examples for us an all-encompassing confidence, an unwavering confidence in the Lord. The second section is in verses 4 through 12, where he expresses a what we could call an all-encompassing desire. And then lastly, what we'll look at this morning is his declaration of an all-encompassing courage. So let's read this psalm together. A psalm of David. The Lord is my light 
and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above all my enemies all around. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen up against me, and such as breathe out violence. And then we come to the verses for this morning. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, upon the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we've come here this morning to wait upon you. We've come with good courage that you have supplied. We come as those desiring not to lose heart or to faint. We come as those believing that we will see the goodness of our Lord in the land of the living. Might you use these verses to encourage us, to strengthen us, to edify us, to solidify our faith in Christ. Would you increase our faith where it is weak, cause it to be living and vibrant. Lord, we pray that in this we will see the beauty of Christ's ministry to us, that we would see the overcoming nature of faith in him. We ask you to do these things so that you would receive the utmost glory. And in so doing, Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts to observe the Lord's table. And in observing this table, that we declare or show forth the Lord's death again until he comes. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. These two verses are important. Because the world that we live in 
is suffering the effects of sin all around. The Word of God is to be our solace when trouble finds us and trouble will find you. Trouble will find you. You should expect it. It's going to come very close to your door. And you'll have to answer that door, that call, in some way or another. We can answer that call in great fear, distress, anxiety, doubt. Or we can answer the door with great faith in the Lord, not losing heart, of good courage, with expectancy. I'll point you back to the fifth verse where David makes the declaration here, in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. He is in every way our refuge and strength. He is ever with us, never leaving us nor forsaking us. Now going to the 13th verse, I want you to look with me at what we can call the overcoming nature of faith. The overcoming nature of faith. And I want to deal first with that part of the verse that is in italics. You know that when you're reading the Bible, reading the scriptures, most all of the translations, regardless of what you have, if there's something set in italics, what that means is it's not in the original language. And the translators have supplied it so that the verse makes sense. We always have to be careful with italicized words. But in this case, I, I, we're trusting rightly that they're beneficial for us. I want to give you different wordings from different translations. Again, the New King James that I'm reading says, I would have lost heart unless. If you're reading the King James Version, it said, I would have fainted unless. The New American Standard says, I would have despaired unless. And the ESV drops the italics altogether and just says, I believe. Cutting right to the heart, even though it gives you in a note in the margin one of these other alternate readings. This is very akin to what we find over and over in the scriptures. The temptation to be fearful. The temptation to doubt. The temptation to be completely overcome by circumstances. But for those of us who are Christian, and by that I don't mean in word only, but those of us who are professing and bearing good evidence that Christ indeed has drawn us to himself the Spirit of God has made application to our own soul, the blood of Christ and the salvation and redemption that we find in Him, then we can take these words for our own and say, I would have lost heart unless I had believed. Charles Spurgeon says, faintness of heart is a common infirmity. Let me remind you who is saying this. David, back up in the fifth, or excuse me, the ninth verse, he says, you have been my help. Think on how many numerous occasions the Lord had proven himself to David to be his help. And I'll just bring out one that we're all aware of as a young boy standing before the giant of the Philistines. 
David's recalling most likely that event and many others in his mind. You have been my help. But even he who has known such great help of the Lord is prone to seasons of fainting and despair unless he had believed. We'll get to what he believed a little later, but let me remind you of other places in the scripture where we see this same pattern. One of the greatest displays of this is found in the minor prophet Habakkuk. And you may recall to mind how that small book comes to a close. It's been set to music in very various ways, but it begins, Habakkuk begins with this prophet of the Lord saying this, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you not hear me? You ever felt like that? Even cry out to you violence and yet you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention continually arises. We could borrow those words from Habakkuk and make them our own, couldn't we? Habakkuk, as he surveys the landscape, as he observes everything that is taking place, even as he cries out to the Lord, it seems like the Lord is not hearing. It seems like the Lord is taking no notice. All he sees is violence and iniquity, plundering, strife, and contention. That's how he begins this small prophecy of his. But as you read the ensuing verses and you see the bookends of first the great fear of this prophet, and then as he goes through all of his words and makes them known, he ends with great faith. And certainly you'll recognize these words as I read them out of verses 17 through 19 of the last chapter. He says, though the fig tree may not blossom, nor there be any fruit on the vines, even though the labor of the olive fails and the fields yield no food. Though the flock be cut off from the fold and there is no herd in the stalls. All of these taken from the realm of agriculture. All of these representing for the prophet in his day what would have been the great blessing of the Lord. If the fig tree was blossoming, if there were fruit on the vines, if the labor of the olive was producing and the fields were full of food and the flocks were all in the stalls, well equipped, well supplied. But the very opposite of that is what he is making known. How does he end? He says, yet, or even though all of this is true, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. And he will make me walk on my high, high hills. And then the tag at the end, part of inspired scripture, he presents this to the chief musician with my stringed instruments as words to be sung back to the Lord. And remember, we're talking here about the overcoming nature of faith. And how can we not think of this verse in 1 John chapter 5? For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. But a faith in particular, as John reminds us, who has overcome the world? 
but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. If we take this back to the 13th verse of Psalm 27, how often could we say in agreement with David, I would have fainted, I would have lost heart, I would have despaired, and have completely been overcome unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Faith in God through Christ overcomes everything. But we have to include all of those words. It's not just our faith that is pointed out here. It's our faith in the goodness of the Lord, which is multifaceted. Faith in God through Christ overcomes all. Faith in God through Christ and all of his promises is a steadying anchor for this life. I point you back to the fifth verse again when he says, In the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion in the secret place of his tabernacle. He shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. A place of safety, a place of refuge. And I think we can state it this way, and it's helpful to state it this way. We will either overcome our trouble by faith in the goodness of the Lord and his Christ, or trouble will overcome us. There's really only those two options. We will overcome by faith in Christ any trouble that this life offers, or that trouble will completely overcome us. And then how often are we left just in great humility to ask the Lord, Lord, increase my faith. Increase it. Very often it's weak. Very often I stand in need. That's a prayer that the Lord is pleased to answer when it's prayed in sincerity. So what is keeping David from losing heart, feigning, despairing? It's exercising faith Notice the second half of verse 13 in what we'll call the overwhelming goodness of the Lord. The overwhelming goodness of the Lord. Never let the trouble of life deter you from clinging by faith to this declaration of Scripture. We sang it this morning. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. He is faithful. Come what may, the Lord is good. The Lord gives, the Lord takes. And in all of it, the Lord is good. Faith feeds upon the expectation of his goodness made known to us. Again, the verse reads, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord. Every good thing that we have and every good thing that we expect has its beginning in God. Every good and perfect gift has come down to us from Him. But very often we apply this truth only to the hereafter, and that's certainly true. We should expect, can expect, have every right from the scriptures to expect that we will ultimately, finally, fully see the goodness of God in glory. But that's not what the verse says. 
David says, I would have fainted, I would have grown weary, I would have despaired, lost heart. If I had not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Right here, right now, the Lord makes his goodness known. What is it that keeps you or keeps me, keeps us from just absolutely fainting in the day of trouble? Being completely overwhelmed. The verse gives us the answer. Faith that God again will renew his goodness. And then we're reminded of verses like Lamentations 3. His mercies are new every morning. That's God expressing his goodness to us in the land of the living. The people of God have every right and expectation to seek good from the hands of the Lord. It pleases him to bless us as his people. But yet we can't stop short and see that some trouble or trial in life is a cutting off of this promise. How often do we read, and I'm thinking here of verses that Peter would write about trial and trouble, how that in itself is God expressing his goodness to us. How so? How can we say that? Because in experiencing those things, the Lord is teaching us and sanctifying us. Admittedly, not many of us are going to raise our hand and sign up first thing in the morning for some kind of trouble to befall us that day. But when it does, we need not be shaken. We need to, in humble dependence, see that the Lord is expressing his goodness to us again in ways that we possibly can't even begin to understand. But what is the great declaration from Paul that we all know in Romans chapter 8? All things work together for good. That's the incomprehensible truth to those who stand outside of faith in Christ. But yet that's one of the unifying verses in all of Scripture, the experience of the people of God. We have that as an anchor. The Lord is working all things together for our good. And so we have every right, just as David here, to expect that we would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then we get to the 14th verse. Not only does David here declare to us the overcoming nature of faith and the overwhelming goodness of the Lord, but thirdly, what I suppose we could call the overpowering strength that the Lord gives. Look at verse 14. And I want you to take verse 14 as an imperative because that's what it is. What I mean by that is this is coming to us in the language of command. These are coming to us as expectations. This is coming to us not in the form of do this if you wish, but do this and experience the great benefit of it. Notice the 14th verse says, wait on the Lord. What do you do in a time of trouble? Is it going to dissipate immediately? 
not very often. Not very often is it going to go away just as suddenly as it came. Sometimes it never leaves. Sometimes it fades slowly away. But in all of that, we are called to wait. Your Bible may give you a note there, to wait in faith on the Lord. This is an expectation. We're most familiar with this language out of Isaiah chapter 40. You may have Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 through 31, displayed in your home somewhere. What do those verses say? Isaiah asks the question, have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. And the most familiar of these verses, even the youths shall faint and be weary. And the young man shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So I want you to to notice all of these words that Isaiah uses. He talks about the weak to those who have no might, to those who are fainting, to those who are weary, to those who have fallen. And then he contrasts all of that by saying, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. So what does it mean to wait on the Lord? Probably from Isaiah 40 and Psalm 27, 14, we would say, yes, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to wait upon the Lord because whatever waiting means, I see the great benefit attached to it. I am all of these things. I'm weary, without strength, fainting, perhaps fallen. I want to know what it means to have renewed strength and to mount up with wings like eagles. The only thing that seems to come in between my experience of this is what it means to wait on the Lord. Well, let's talk about that for just a minute because... That's a good question to try to answer. We need to understand it. It doesn't just mean sit on your hands in a corner and wait for the Lord to turn things around. An illustration of that, when you go to to somewhere to eat, you have a waiter or a waitress waiting on you. What are they doing? They're active. They're busy. They're giving you things that you need. What would you think of your waiter if they just went and sat in the corner? And that's how they chose to wait upon you. Probably wouldn't leave a tip, right? But when we use that same illustration and apply it to this word wait, it means to be actively attending to the things of God. So waiting upon the Lord is being obedient to the scriptures, endeavoring to be obedient in the scriptures in everything. It means to act obediently to his word. It means to act and wait upon him in prayerful submission to his will. It means to wait in hope and in trust. I don't know this family that I'm about to tell you about, but 
even though I don't know them, I've been greatly encouraged by the things that I've read. A young family, missionary family. The father developed cancer in his arm. And you can look this up. There's a great testimony given by him. Before his death, his name was Joel Tigreen. That cancer spread throughout his body, into his lungs. I believe he and his wife had five or six small children. And in the end, he went to be with the Lord not long ago. The thing that encourages me about his widow, this young woman now with five or six children to raise on her own, she doesn't very often publish things, but every time she does, at least the times that I've seen it, she ends by saying, she ends by saying this, Daddy, we miss you. God, we trust you. Faith. Courage. Understanding that even in trial and difficulty, God does all things well. Is it hard? We can only imagine how difficult. But putting both of those things there together speaks of reality. Is there a real hole in her life and the life of her children? Absolutely. But then always attached. Lord, we trust you. We don't know why you've done what you've done, but we trust that your purpose and will in it was for our good. Does that take maturity of faith to be able to say, absolutely. Would I respond in such a way? Would you respond in such a way? What faith, what courage, and what trust? Waiting on the Lord being of good courage. This word simply means to be brave. But it's not a self-sustained or even a self-initiated bravery. It's not bravery that comes from your own strength. It's not bravery that you can muster up when you need it. It's bravery, courage that comes from waiting upon the Lord. Trusting in Him. Believing that you will indeed see the goodness of the Lord in his overwhelming goodness. Be of good courage. And what's attached to this? The end of verse 14. And he shall. What shall he do? He shall strengthen your heart. The word strengthen here means to give new vibrancy. We could apply it back to Isaiah chapter 40. He shall renew their strength. The illustration of renewed strength is they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. They shall mount up with eagles. The Lord gives strength. And then the the psalm ends with the admonition again to say, Wait, I say, on 
the Lord. And I've written in the margin of my Bible here a quotation from William Plummer in his commentary on the Psalms, which I had forgotten until I turned back here this week and was reading this psalm. His explanation of what it means to wait on the Lord. This is what he says. Stand in your lot. What he means there is your lot in life, what the Lord has given you. Stand in your lot and hope for better days. Don't fight against it. Don't let it be cause for you to doubt the goodness of the Lord, but courageously stand firm in your lot that the Lord has given, even while you hope and expect long for better days. It's a good description of what it means to wait. It's no use to struggle. Very often it's no use to struggle and find a way out of the lot the Lord has given you. There's a great little book, I don't remember exactly who the author is, called The Crook in the Lot. And that title is representative of the hard, difficult trials, sufferings, of this life, the crooked place in the lot the Lord has given us. What do you do when you come to that crook in the road? When things don't go the way that you wanted them to go, expected them to go, in a way that you would have never chosen for yourself, what do you do? You stand firm in the lot and you hope for a better day. And very often... Just as the Lord is the author of the crook, he is the author of the better day. And he will renew his goodness to you, even in this land of the living. So when we take this psalm in its entirety, I want you to notice the bookends of the psalm. The first verse and the last verse. The first and the last verse. David says, the Lord is is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? You could also ask the question there, what shall I fear? Since this is true, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Is there anything in life that the Christian should fear ultimately? The answer to that is no. But yet you run through the psalm and what we find is the wicked have come up against him. And so graphically he displays this that he says they tried to eat my flesh and bones. An army encamped against him. Whether or not he is speaking literally here we don't know but very real possibility that he is. An army may encamp against me. My heart shall not fear. Could we say that? Often it feels in life like there is an army encamped against you. Like there's no one for you. Except the Lord. War rising up against him. Speaks of his enemies in verse 6. He speaks of seeking the Lord's face and crying out to the Lord with his voice. 
asking not to be turned away in anger, forsaken of his mother and father. And we could understand that in a couple of ways, either forsaken in life or just forsaken because they've died and and are no longer able to encourage or strengthen him. But yet, he says, even then the Lord will take care of me. Throughout all of this experience of life, he begins with a confident declaration of faith. The Lord is my light and salvation. And he works through all of these intervening experiences and the way he's perceived them. And he gets down to the end. And he says, reviewing it all. Perhaps even as you're reviewing your life now, I would have fainted. I would have lost heart. It would have been enough to be the end of me unless, unless, just like Habakkuk, though all of this be true, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. God help us to be a people who wait on the Lord, to be a people of good courage, and to experience the strengthening of heart that David speaks of here. Stand in your lot and hope for a better day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you, Lord, for the experience of David, his exhortation to us, and that his experience can be ours. Lord, help us to do these things that you've instructed us to do. To actively wait upon you. To be of good courage because you are our God, our Father in heaven. To experience the strengthening, the encouragement of our own heart as we wait upon you. So we come again, our Lord, to you. We come with eyes of faith expectancy, desiring to to experience good from your hand again, declaring our trust and confidence in you. So help us now as we move into a time of observing the Lord's Supper. May it be beneficial for us, edifying to our faith, glorifying to you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So in turning our attention here to communion, to the Lord's table, I want you to see that this is a way that we wait upon the Lord. This is our active waiting upon Him and being obedient to the things He has called us to be obedient to. I want to answer these questions before I have some of the men come forward. Very often, I'm asked after a service about our practice of communion. And churches carry this out in different ways. Some churches have a closed communion, which is that only members of the church are welcome to the table. 
We don't have a closed communion. I like this terminology. We have a close communion. And what that means is we're desiring in faith to come together and commune together in our expectation of being edified and encouraged in the supper. But back to the question, who may partake of the Lord's Supper? Well, this is how I would give answer to it. The Lord's Supper is for believers only. Paul speaks of those who eat and drink condemnation unto themselves. The Lord's Supper is for those who have turned from sin to Christ and are trusting in Him alone for salvation. It's for those who have a real, full, biblical understanding of salvation and that Christ is your only hope. So if you are believing in Christ only, if you have repented of your sin and turned to Christ, then absolutely the Lord's Supper is for you. But we can go on with that. We can say that the Supper, the Lord's Supper communion, is for those who have been obedient to Christ through believers' baptism. The Lord has given us two ordinances in the New Covenant. The first is believers' baptism. And when understood rightly and administered correctly, biblically, that's a one-time ordinance. We don't come continually over and over again to the waters of baptism. And so, for those who have been obedient to the Scriptures and to the Lord Jesus Christ... In baptism, the table of the Lord is open. But it's also for those who are presently repenting of sin. And what I mean by that, there is no known sin that you are glorying in and unwilling to turn from. Repentance is a life-long endeavor for the believer. But it's also for those whose relations with those in your family, those in your workplace, those brothers and sisters of yours in this church whose relations are characterized by love and charity, being in good standing with one another. For those who love the church, the bride of Christ. And then I would add what we read there out of Psalm 27, verse 14, those who are waiting upon the Lord. So if these things are as they should be, and I trust the Lord to use your conscience. If these things are as they should be in your heart and in your life, then you are welcome to the table. Now what about your children? What about your children? The same applies. If your children have made a profession of faith in Christ, turned from their sin, trusting in Christ, have been baptized, presently repenting of sin, bearing fruit, then absolutely they're welcome. So let me pray and then I want to ask our men to come and we'll disperse and observe the Lord's table. Father, we come in faith. We come in faith in Christ. Having repented of sin and now clinging to Him as our only hope and our only source of life. Trusting in no other having turned from our own self-righteousness, turned from our own self 
love and works and to Christ alone. Father, help us to really benefit from this observing of this ordinance. We thank you for it. We thank you that in grace you have given it to us so that we may, as often as we eat it, that we may remember the cost of our redemption, the shedding of your blood, the breaking of your body. So Lord, we come in faith. We come in Christ's name. Amen.